It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Welcome back to the Message to Kings podcast. In this episode, we're going to have a talk history episode with long-term listener Brant Frost. Brant Frost is a native of Atlanta, Georgia. He's a businessman like myself with a passion for Jesus and history. Also, he's the video producer of the YouTube channel American Minute by Bill Federer and the current Georgia State Coordinator of the Ted Cruz election campaign. So in this episode, you get to hear two guys talk about Egypt and the Israelites up to the time period of Solomon. All right, without further introduction, here we go. Hello, Brant. How are you? Great, Brant. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for joining me for this episode of Message to Kings. We've been in a dialogue for some time regarding the life of David. I can't believe it took a whole year to cover David, by the way. Over the last year, we've dialogued on many a topic, and recently you contacted me about Egypt and its history and the intersections of God's people, the Israelites, and Egyptian history. Taking a break from our timeline and a shift move, into the kingdom time of Solomon, we should give everyone an outlook on the world around this time period and catch up on history that we left off. Brant, you have a passion for history and have a far firmer grasp of Egyptian history than myself. And since Solomon marries an Egyptian princess, let's talk about Egypt in this episode. Brant, where should we start with this episode? Well, first, my apologies for the fact that we'll only be able to cover a brief summary of this very rich and compelling topic, the most fascinating of all historical pursuits, and people have spent their whole lives studying it. In fact, it's really incredible how it's truly a generational project. Even right now in Egypt, there are archaeological digs going on which can only be pursued a few years at a time yard by yard in some of these ancient tombs. They're so unstable in terms of uh, worried about the ceiling caving in, etc., that an archaeologist in his 60s can only go a few yards. They have to brace up the ceiling and then wait a few years to make sure everything is safe before proceeding. So this involves 60, 70 years of work. No one man's lifetime can be, uh, can see all that's going on there. And yet, Egyptologists in their scores and their hundreds still go to Egypt. It is truly a phenomena of modern archaeology, the fascination with Egypt and the compelling drive to learn more is, is truly remarkable. Another thing which uh, I'd like to uh, just start with are a few ground rules. First off, when we're drawing from sources for this episode, this discussion, We'll be referring to the Bible and deferring to the Bible as the only true and reliable history. If you look at the history of Egypt, and if you're talking with a historian or an Egyptologist who is being honest with you and isn't just trying to impress you, he'll tell you that the history of Egypt that we know is like pulling a handful of puzzle pieces out of a puzzle with a thousand pieces. Imagine if you were trying to figure out what a puzzle looked like just by drawing out 30 or 40 pieces out of a 2,000 piece puzzle. At best you could get a small idea, but everything else you'd have to start guessing. And that's what we have with Egypt. We have bits and pieces, and yet we try to have a history as best we can. But what really amazes me, Brett, is that you have people who, many of whom call themselves Christian, who want to use those shards of broken history up and put them up against the Bible and say, well, Egypt says this, 
the Bible says this, they're in conflict, therefore Egypt must be right and the Bible must be wrong. We have a beautiful tapestry, complete and unfrayed, of biblical history in the Old and New Testament. And yet people, I think out of a sense of insecurity in the Word of God, thinking it's not sufficient, want to defer to these broken shards of Egyptian history and say, well, Egypt says this, the Bible must be wrong. And when you consider that, consider that the Bible is the only true and reliable, consistent history. And when you look at these little bits beside it, it's really amazing to me why anybody would want to defer to anything but the Scripture. Uh, also, the chronology. Uh, we're going to be using the basic uh, chronology, the traditional one, popularized by Bishop Busher in his Annals of the World, which would set the creation date at 4004 B.C. and the flood in the year 2348 B.C. And we'll therefore be assuming that all the dates of Egyptian history go back no more than to 2400, uh, to the 24th century B.C. Uh, and when the Tower of Babel is considered probably more of the 22nd or 21st century B.C. So the traditional secular chronology has to be speeded up much closer to modern times because if it doesn't, there's a huge gap in the history of the world uh, in the Bible, and we're not into gaps when it comes to the study of God's Word. We believe it's whole and complete. One result of this biblical chronology is that rather than evolving over a long period of time, Brett, Egyptian civilization grew rapidly, burst on the Nile region, and you see that the Great Pyramids were built within about 200 years of the founding of the Egyptian civilization. And if you consider 200 years, that's less time than the U.S. has been in existence. We think of Egypt as a very old nation, and it is a very old nation. But when you consider that God created man with a genius in creation, and that that genius was used to create great marvels like the pyramids and great evils, like paganism and human sacrifice. When you consider that man does not evolve upward over time, but rather devolves downward, that apart from modern medicine and modern methods, we would probably have a life expectancy today in the 30s, the on average, around the world. But that is a result of sin. So you see that the first men in Samaria and in Egypt after the flood were much more intelligent than we give them credit for, but that goes back to the biblical idea that man was created in God's image with great ability, and that through sin, man devolves, just like civilizations devolve over time. So, Brad, I had this interesting thought that uh, when uh, God gave different languages at Babel, that the engineers and the architects became the Egyptians. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very interesting thought right there, and uh, that's, uh, that's, a, uh, that's very good. You think about how that must have been in terms of the department. Uh, right now, in construction and in any business, sometimes it's hard enough for accounting to convince the guys on the ground that uh, they have to use, uh, they can't spend more than a certain amount of money. Can you imagine what would happen if the construction crew at Ziggurat, the Ziggurat at uh, Tower of Abel suddenly came in and said, okay, we need this many more mud bricks. The man says, pardon me, sure. And <laughs> they can barely understand, they can barely understand them now. That would have been crazy. But, um, yeah, so those with that technical expertise were the ones that went to Egypt and built the pyramids. They're like, we'll build it bigger. Absolutely. Well, there, there is a, um, that, that is a, that's a, that's a little side note I'll, I'll make a quick digression on. Um, in the uh, excellent book, Unwrapping the Pharaohs by David Down, um, Christian Egyptologist uh, Dr. David Down, um, looking at the revised chronology based on the Bible, um, hypothesizes that Abraham was actually a contemporary of the Pharaoh who built the Great Pyramid of Giza. And when you consider that the Sumerians, the Mesopotamians, Ur, the Chaldees, etc., was the center of learning when it came to advanced mathematics and astronomy of that period, Dr. Down hypothesizes that 
some of the learning in advanced mathematics and astronomy, which was used to build the pyramids, may have come from Abraham and through that influence there. So you see the, inter the intertwining of the Bible and even the building of the pyramids. We don't know for sure, but it's certainly very interesting to contemplate, particularly when you consider that most of this is not even talked about today because of some institutional issues with giving credit for advancement of civilization to the Jewish community and to Israel uh, because of past uh, institutional uh, anti-Semitism within academia, which is not much talked about today, obviously, because the academics don't want to talk about it. So I guess we should probably start with Joseph, right? So well, well, yes. If you go back and look at to where this all gets started in the, in the book of Genesis, we see where the Bible says, Now there arose a king over Egypt who knew not Joseph and who said unto his people, Behold, the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come now, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they will join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get, get them out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them and afflicted them with heavy burdens, and they built the treasure cities for the Pharaoh. And it goes on to describe some of the other afflictions which the Pharaoh put on them. But right there you see some really good information First off, the Pharaoh is concerned about a alien people within their country, and this is a problem even today. We see all around the world the problem of assimilation, the problem of different cultures residing within the same nation state, and the fear about loyalties. And we see this in American history. We've seen this in the history of nations all over the world. And so now the question is, who was the Pharaoh that didn't know Joseph? The Bible doesn't tell us, so it's not, it's not something that we have to know to salvation. It won't send you to heaven or hell, who the Pharaoh was, but it helps make the story richer, and it helps you defend the Word of God. And this is why people, folks listening are probably thinking right now, at least some of them, why does this matter to my Christian walk? Is it going to get me into heaven or hell? No. Only the Lord Jesus Christ, faith in Him is the difference between heaven and hell. But when you're dealing with a non-believer or with a believer who's struggling with doubt, knowing this information helps you combat the lies of the world and the distortions of people who seek to make the word compatible to the world rather than the other way around. We're told to always be ready to have an answer for the truth that's within us, and this is a way to combat these things and to prepare yourself and put on the whole armor of God, so to speak. If you look at Egypt, Egyptian history, it's far less precise. People don't realize that biblical history is really unique, Brett, in the fact that we have in the Bible not only an account of the faults of the kings of Israel and of Egypt, uh, Israel and Judah, uh, like David's falling into sin with Bathsheba, etc., but we also have continuity, and you don't have that in the history of Egypt. You have them recording examples of victories. Like for, there's a joke among about the his, about the kings of Egypt that they never lost a battle. No pharaoh ever lost a battle. He just kept winning battles a little closer to home mm -hmm. because he was backing up and retreating because he was actually losing battles. But the history always records victories. So you have to piece together a little bit more delicately, and you always have to defer back to the Bible, which actually is the yardstick that we can measure all these cloths by, these scraps of cloth of Egyptian history, and get an accurate timing. In terms of the Pharaoh of the oppression of the Israelites, this is probably going to be Sesostris III of the 12th dynasty, and if there are any Egyptian fans listening, and I butcher some of the names, I apologize. I'm a Georgia boy. Uh, sometimes these words are hard to roll off a, a Georgia boy's tongue. But this Pharaoh, Sesostris III, is noteworthy in that his statues are not the typical statues. Most statues are very much uh, glossed over and sort of made to look the same because the Egyptians valued continuity and standardization in art more than improvisation and 
originality, and most of them just look like standard cookie-cutter nice pharaohs, but his is different. It has a little more notable features distinct to him, and it's also not a friendly version. He's not smiling. It's, it's sort of a warts-and-all version. It's, you kind of get the idea that this was the sort of pharaoh said, hey, make me as I am. I don't care. And there are also texts from that period referring to him, him writing of himself as having burned the tents of his enemies and scattered his enemies and been you know, reveling in his great uh, success and his uh, cruelty to his enemies as he defeats the enemies of Egypt. So this is definitely a hard guy, and this is uh, quite likely to be the pharaoh who persecuted the uh, Israelites during this period. And this, is, this period, uh, the period of oppression in Egypt is also somewhat... Um, subject to debate. A lot of people think it was 400 years, but if you look at the chronology and the way it flows, that really doesn't fit. What is far more likely is that it was a period of around 200 years, uh, 200 years of, of actual oppression, because it's sojourn. It's the sojourn of Israel was 400 years. That is the sojourn from the time that Abraham left Ur to the time of the Exodus, which puts the time of oppression at less than 200 years. So you're at this point, Israel has been in Egypt for a couple of generations, and they've been oppressed for a little while now when Moses comes on the scene. And the Bible tells us that the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens uh, with her at the riverside. She found Moses in the basket, named him, uh, gave him that name because he was drawn out from the water. Now, this may seem like an implausible story to people. I mean, an Egyptian princess adopting a slave child and proposing to make him the next pharaoh, and others have regarded, regarded it as quite factual if you look at the right historical setting. And this is very key. You have to look in the right era of history. If you or I were trying to prove to somebody that Muhammad Ali lived in the 18th century, we'd be laughed out of off the street. There's, we can't prove it course, because he didn't live in the 18th century, he lived in the 20th, still lives today. You have to look in the right time period. And the most likely contender to have been that princess who adopted Moses would have been uh, Sobek's friend, who was the daughter of Pharaoh Amenet III, not Amenhotep III, two different, two different pharaohs several centuries apart. And when you consider that Amenet III had two daughters, but no sons. We have never been able to positively identify any son of that pharaoh, and it has been suggested that Amenet the fourth was the son of Amenhotep the third. But it could very well, just as easily, be that he was the son of the daughter of the pharaoh. And this pharaoh the fourth, Amenhotep the fourth, is somewhat mysterious because we don't know very much about him. He disappears from the history around the time of his uh, supposed father, and it's quite likely that he was co-regent for a time during that period. So it's very interesting to think of Moses not just as a prince of Egypt, but as an actual co-ruler, at least for a period of time. Because you remember, he fled Egypt at 40. Most pharaohs started assuming some responsibility of leadership in their 20s as young princes if their fathers were still alive and as full pharaohs if they weren't. So, uh, so Moses may have been pharaoh, co-pharaoh, deputy pharaoh, for as many as ten years before the Lord moved on his heart to see the afflictions of his brothers and drawn him into the wilderness, which makes the story even more richer because it's not like he was a prince who was never going to be pharaoh and, you know, he wasn't really going anywhere. He was in line most likely to be Pharaoh. He was already acting with the powers of the most powerful nation in the world. He was vice president, if you will. And yet the spirit drew him to, to give up all the comforts, all the powers of that world, and to go into the wilderness because the Lord had something better for him. It's really incredible when you think about it. So go, going back to the uh, foster mother of Moses, if this, under these circumstances, she would have had, she would have not been down at the riverside. This is another thing. People think, why would she be bathing down on the riverside? They had bathrooms in the palace. There were a couple million people in Egypt. It's hundreds of thousands of Israelite slaves. 
they didn't have any problem with, with bathing. She could have people in the palace help her. That was not for this purpose. She was going down to offer uh, rights to the river god, um, Happy, the fertility god of Egypt. And she would be going down there to observe a religious ritual, praying to the fertility god for a baby. She was probably having problems with conceiving a child. And so you think about how in the Bible there are stories. We know of the history of people uh, having miraculous things happen to them. The, the Assyrian general. Elisha told to bathe in the Jordan. He was healed of his leprosy. So you can imagine she's down there praying, and then a beautiful child comes, is found in the bulrushes, and she thinks, well, this is from the gods. This child is from the gods uh, for, for me. So also her father, who didn't have any sons that we could positively identify, ruled for about 46 years. So at the beginning of his reign, if Moses was born at that period, he would have been able to have spent his whole time in Egypt during the reign of this one pharaoh. So he was born, say, in the third year of his grandfather. Forty years later, it's in the last few years of Amenet III when he is eventually forced to flee after he kills the Egyptian. So, and, and after Moses flees Egypt, Sobrikfen, uh, his foster mother, would actually rule Egypt for a short period of time because her father... Uh, died with no other children, and she would rule as a pharaoh for a few years before the 12th dynasty eventually dies out and a new dynasty comes into place. So now let's fast forward, Brett, 40 years to the time of Exodus. This is going to be about 1491 B.C. There's some debate over the exact date, but I think 1491 is the most likely one given the biblical history and chronology. It's also... Um, it's also easy to remember, 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. That's easy. F 1491, freedom by God for Israel was won. <laughs> there you go. Hey, quick question for you, Brant. So uh, most Egyptology has the biblical time period centuries off, correct? And that's yeah, the biggest problem. Yes, Ex Exodus, and there's, a, there's an excellent, excellent uh, documentary, which is the best documentary I've ever seen of on the Exodus, which was not done from an explicitly Christian perspective. Tim uh, Timothy Mahoney's Patterns of Ev Evidence in Exodus. It's on Netflix, and I urge everyone to go watch it. It is definitely worth your time, and it explains how this is a problem, that Egyptologists deny that there's any evidence for the Exodus because they're looking in the wrong time period. They're looking in the time of Ramses II, in the 1200s when in fact they should be looking a couple hundred years earlier and you see evidence throughout it and I won't give away the story but basically you see no evidence for a large Semitic population in Israel uh, in Egypt at the time of Ramesses but you see incredible evidence for people Semitic peoples in Egypt at the time of 200 years earlier in the 12th 13th dynasties. So getting your dates right is critical. Most people have little interest in chronology, but it is very key to determining the history of the world. And even today, the reason they don't accept it is because they're comfortable in their old chronology. It's been this way for centuries, and the Egyptologists don't want to you know, change based on this new information. Plus, most of them are non-believers or or very weak believers, if, if believers at all, and they don't want to admit that the Bible is superior to anything else. You've got the Bible versus all of the conventional historians saying this one thing, and, you know, who's going to stand up for the Bible if you don't even believe it's literally true? If you don't believe that most of the Bible is literally true, if you don't believe in miracles, why are you going to defend the Bible's interpretation of chronology? So that's very important, getting the dates right. And when you look at the time of the Exodus, now we're fast, fast forward 40 years, it's the time of the Exodus, and the Pharaoh of this time period, Neferhotep uh, I, is on the throne right now. He's been on the throne for about 10 years, and Moses and Aaron confront the Pharaoh, demand in the name of the Lord that he let the children of Israel go. The Pharaoh, of course, refuses, and the ten plagues follow. 
in the aftermath of the ten plagues, Egypt has been just devastated, and all the wealth gained from the enslavement of the children of Israel has just been lost many times over. It's like in the South, after the Civil War, the entire wealth of the South was just devastated. The South was just destroyed after that war. So all the wealth that had been gained all the from slavery in America destroyed in that conflagration. Same thing with Egypt, just the whole country's in ruins. And so right now, what you see is what's happening in Egypt is there's a void, there's, a mis there's no pharaoh, there's no f Egyptian army, because they've been destroyed in the Red Sea, so now there's a void, a vacuum. And politics, just like nature, abhors a vacuum, so who comes in to fill it? Well, that's where the Hyksos came in. Hyksos, who a lot of people, we don't know too much about them. Hyksos means kings of foreigners in, in Egyptian. It's a corruption of an old Egyptian word to basically mean kings of foreigners and kings who fo rule foreign lands. So before we get to the Hyksos, um, isn't there a, there's a papyrus, right? There is. There, there is a papyrus which was uncovered in the 1820s, about a quarter century after Egyptology really got started when Napoleon went to Egypt and found the Rosetta Stone. In the 1820s, it's, uh, was, this papyrus was discovered, and it's still in the Leiden Museum in Holland today. And it describes in very seer graphic detail and searing detail the the plagues of Egypt. It doesn't specifically date it or say that it, it was Moses, but it describes plagues that are just like the ones in the Bible, and it's really incredible. For example, uh, it's, it's written by a scribe of the period who's talking about the miseries going through the land, and he says, quote, plague stalks through the land, and blood is everywhere. Nay, but the river is blood. Does a man drink from it? Nay, but the son of the high-born man is no longer to be recognized. The king has been taken away by poor men. And it goes on, but that's just a sample of what we're talking about here. And people say, well, this must be hyperbole. I mean, how could the river be blood? And I mean, this, this is just literary license. And it would be, except that we have another history of the same period, when using the correct chronology, that describes the exact same events. The Bible, we have two accounts, eyewitness accounts, because Moses wrote the book of Exodus, and this scribe is writing in the describing events which happened in his lifetime. So we have two first-person accounts of the same events happening. This is a very strong, a very strong indication of what was going on there, and this helps when we're talking to people who don't trust the Bible as fully authentic. We would believe the Bible regardless of this papyrus, but it's great to have this additional information to be able to show people who are skeptical of the claims of the Holy Scripture. Now, the Tixos come, come into Egypt, and the, we, we know from uh, history, Josephus quotes a historian of an earlier era describing how the, the Hyksos sweep into Egypt, but they take the land without a battle. It's, quote, Yet without our, hazard, our hazarding a battle with them, they subdued the land by force. This is describing the Egyptians who wouldn't dare hazard a battle. Well, this doesn't make any sense at all. Egyptians were extremely hostile to the idea of foreign rulers. They didn't like the idea at all. So they would have been revolted by this idea and would have fought. But why didn't they? Why weren't they fighting? Scholars have been puzzled about this. Where was the well-trained Egyptian army that should have been repelling this invader? Well, they were at the bottom of the Red Sea. And it's interesting that Pharaoh Neferhotep I is the only pharaoh, well, excuse me, not the only pharaoh, but he, his mummy has never been found. And he had a son, but that son did not succeed him as pharaoh. So that also follows the biblical pattern. You have a, a pharaoh who is lost to history, his body's at the bottom of the Red Sea, and you have a pharaoh who had a son who preceded him in death, just like the Bible describes. And so now you're looking at the Hyksos. Who were these Hyksos? Well, we know it's agreed among historians that these were Semitic peoples. They were not, uh, they were not of, of uh, Egyptian or North African origin. They came from uh, Arabia or 
the Levant, Canaan, somewhere around there. And there have been a lot of historians who've looked at the dates, looked at the contemporary evidence, and have come to the conclusion that these were actually the Amalekites of whom the Bible describes attacking the Israelites on the way out of Egypt. And the Amalekites were in northern Arabia, had influence in Canaan, and as far as Mesopotamia. So you see this nomadic tribe of very fierce people. The, I mean, the Bible, the Bible describes the cruelties of Amalek, and, he, and the Lord tells Moses, blot out Amalek. One of the reasons we can draw a parallel and a, have a good idea, pretty good conclusion that the Hyksos and the Amalekites were the same, in addition to being the same time period, the same um, basic uh, people groups, Semitic, um, shepherd kings, nomadic, that kind of thing. Both of them were known for their brutality and their cruelty. And the time they ruled Egypt is, is we don't know for sure, uh, scholars debate, but it was probably in the neighborhood of around 400 years, which is interesting because the period of the uh, hardship and the oppression in Egypt was around 150 to 200 years. So it's interesting to think how the Lord repaid the judgment and on Israel on Egypt double, not just the normal, but they got they were repaid in judgment in spades by God for what uh, what had happened to the Israelites during that period. So the Hyksos now constitute the 14th, 15th, and 16th dynasties, and they rule over the Nile Delta region. They don't rule all of Egypt, uh, but in great numbers. They don't go all the way down to Thebes and to the Valley of the Kings area and southern Egypt down to Sudan. But they have control over the north, and they exercise a sort of overlordship over the south, too. The 17th dynasty, which ruled the southern part of Egypt, does not seem to have fought them at all during this period. They seem to have been, uh, if not content, uh, acquiescing to the control and the overlordship of the Hyksos. And this period is the time of the judges and the time of Saul So you're and Samuel. So you're going through this period. You can get it in your mind, okay, this is while, he, while Israel is fighting its Canaanite enemies, fighting various enemies, becoming a nation during this period of the judges and the Israelite confederation and, and decentralized government, this is when the Hyksos are ruling in Egypt. So you move forward to the time of Saul and a, a very interesting story, uh, one of the more amusing stories of Egyptian history. The pharaoh of the southern dynasty receives a delegation from the Hyksos Amalekite king of the north, whose name is Apophis. And Apophis is sending this delegation to complain about a canal, which the pharaoh of the south has been digging because the hippopotami in the canal were making such a racket and were keeping Apophis awake at night. Well, this Thebes, which is the capital of the southern kingdom, is hundreds and hundreds of miles away from the capital of the north. So this is obviously not what the pharaoh is of the north is saying. He's probably just trying to yank his chain and say, hey, look, look, I've got the power. Look how powerful I am. I want you to stop building this canal. And you can just see the pharaoh of the south gritting his teeth and being polite. But as soon as those ambassadors leave, you can just see him turn into his advisors and say, all right, that's it. Enough's enough. I'm going to drive those barbarians out of this land. And, there's, there, and while there's no record of that pharaoh successfully uh, waging a war to drive the Hyksos out, we do know that his mummy, which is in the Cairo Museum, has two very brutal-looking and savage gashes in its forehead. And this is almost certainly inflicted by a battle axe. So he was killed in battle, almost certainly fighting the Hyksos, the Amalekites, in the War of Liberation to drive the invaders and the oppressors out of northern Egypt. And his body was also partially decomposed before it was mummified. So he may have laid on the battlefield for some days before the body was brought back. So it may have been a losing battle 
that battle where he was killed, that may have been one where they, they lost the battle and it took a while to recover his body. Now, there is record of his son, Tammuz, going to war with the Hyksos and apparently being very victorious and actually attacking the capital city of Avaris. And there's, uh, he records his accomplishments and he says, my valiant army was in front of me like a blast of fire. When day broke, I was on him, that is the enemy, like a falcon. I broke down his walls. I killed his people. My soldiers were as lions. So you're seeing a victory here in driving out the oppressors. Now, despite his boasting about all this, he wasn't as successful as he would make you believe because it had to be his brother, Amosis, who actually completed the task. So three pharaohs, father and two sons, who actually uh, succeeded in this campaign. And strange to, strange to say, the record of this pharaoh's activities comes not from the pharaoh, but from the wall of the tomb of his trusted uh, uh, general, uh, Amosis. Uh, almost exact same spelling, uh, Amosis, Amus, Egyptian names. Um, but it, it, the record describes how the pharaoh besieged the city of Avaris. Avaris is captured, and this general is speaking of himself. He said, I took three captives, total of uh, three, I took three women captives, one man captive, total of four persons. His majesty gave them to me as slaves. Pharaoh besieged the city, and in the sixth year, his majesty took it. And out of all the survivors of the people who lived there, uh, out of all the inhabitants, um, only four survivors are described. There may have been more, but if there were, he would have probably uh, received more slaves. So out of all the thousands of people who could have who lived in that great capital city, probably tens of, tens of thousands, only a few survive. And this is significant because it was during this same period that Saul went to war with Amalek. And the Bible tells us that, the, that Saul was commanded by Samuel to go up and destroy. He says, now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Heveleth all the way to Shur, which is a city in the eastern part of Egypt. So now you have Egypt in its war of liberation against the Hyksos slash Amalekites. At the same moment in history, you have Saul being commanded by Samuel to go and destroy Amalek. The Bible tells us in 1 Samuel, uh, Samuel said to Saul, Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. And so Saul attacked the Amalekites, and he also took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people at the edge of the sword. Everybody was destroyed. And so you see this joint campaign with Saul coming down from the north, and you see the Egyptians attacking from the south, and you see that in this successful war to destroy the Hyksos slash Amalek, you see in this a foundation for a good relationship between the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Egypt, so that about a half a century later, the prince and king of Israel, Solomon, will marry the daughter of the king of Egypt. And you can see why this would be possible and why this would be likely given the good relationship between the two nations because after all Israel has fought alongside Egypt to defeat the Hyksos and has done most of the heavy lifting in terms of liberating Egypt from these oppressors. So now we come to the end of, of the reign and the wars of the kings who fought to liberate Egypt and now we're, this is in the time, the late period of the reign of Saul we're coming up to the time of David that you covered in such good detail over the past year. So now you have the Pharaoh is coming in to uh, the reign, Amenhotep I, and his date is approximately 1051 B.C. to 1031 B.C. And he had no children. And so as a Pharaoh with no children, in Egypt, back in those days, the practice was that the pharaoh was uh, given legitimacy through the royal women of the family rather than through the son. If there 
was a son who was going to be Pharaoh, and the eldest son almost always uh, succeeded to the throne. But he would, uh, but he would marry often the high rank, the highest ranking uh, woman of the royal family, generally his his sister, in order to give legitimacy. So when you have a Pharaoh with no sons, generally what would happen is the Pharaoh's daughter would marry the designated successor. And in the case of Amenhotep, it's Totnes who was the commander of his army. The, uh, General Totnes records in the campaigns of Pharaoh Amenhotep, his, his pharaoh, his commander, the various victories and the successes he records, and he's not shy in tooting his own horn either. He records that his majesty captured the Nubian bowmen in the midst of his army, and he carried them off in fetters, none of them missing. Meanwhile, I, at the head of our army, fought incredibly. So, so they really did like to advertise their accomplishments. And that's another thing you have to remember about Egyptian history. They didn't record defeats, so you have to learn to read between the lines. But it does seem that in this case, there was some real successes, and this wasn't just propaganda on temple walls. So now you move forward to Amenhotep's, the first successor, which would be Thotmes I. And this is the period of the famous Valley of the Kings, where the pharaohs, instead of being buried in the pyramids, as they have been before, are now going to be buried in the Valley of the Kings. And this is the period, uh, this is going to be the dynasty that involves King Tut, Akhenaten, the famous heretic pharaoh, uh, Thotmes III, Thotmes the Great. All these pharaohs are going to be in this new kingdom period. So this, in many ways, is going to be the high point of Egyptian history, and it's going to parallel roughly the time of Saul all the way through to the time of Elijah, uh, Elisha, and Ahab. So this period, get this period of biblical history in mind as we go through this section uh, of Egyptian history. Now, Thomas I does not seem to have been related to his predecessor at all, um, but he became pharaoh and would actually go on to be one of the great pharaohs of Egyptian history, even though he appears to have been a commoner or a noble of, of more lesser station. He quickly set out to expand the city of Luxor. His authority was very much acknowledged, as we know this from delegations from foreign lands had came to bring uh, tribute to him, pay him homage, and he was also a very ambitious man for his country and building his domains. He expanded into Nubia with many campaigns. And the reason for this, you see throughout history, if you study Egyptian history, you see that the Egyptians kept going back to the to Nubia, which we call the Sudan today, because it had gold. Gold, very important in the ancient world and in the modern world. Uh, although it's, it's also funny that the Egyptians valued silver above gold in many periods throughout their history. The pharaohs, for example, many pharaohs later on were buried with their families in caskets, not of gold, but of silver, caskets of pure silver. So while gold was certainly important to them, silver was also very valuable as well. Hmm. So Thomas is a contemporary of King Solomon, and we know from the first book of Kings, it says that Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. All right, so this fascinates me. Who was Pharaoh's daughter and Solomon's future wife, and who is the mysterious queen of Sheba? Thomas I had two daughters. He had one daughter named Hatshepsut, who would become the famous female pharaoh, and then he had another daughter who disappears from the records in Egyptian sources, and it's assumed by many that she died prematurely. However, given this revised chronology and the contemporary of Solomon, it's more likely that she was the daughter who married King Solomon. And the Bible presents a picture of the opulence and wealth during Solomon's reign. Tons and tons of gold were coming into his coffers. In fact, it says that the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. This is from 1 Kings chapter 10. And you think, wow, that's great. Well, yes and no. 
when you have a whole lot of money, be it precious metal or paper money, flooding an economy really fast, and you don't have other things growing with it, industry, the economy, population, inflation is going to set in. And it's quite likely that inflation really started to kick in in, Sol, in uh, Solomon's reign, certainly to the later part of Solomon's reign. Now, Solomon ruled a large area, too. He ruled the area today that we know as Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, all the way up until the Sinai Peninsula. So he covered all this area was under his control, either with direct Israelite occupation and population, uh, living there as inhabitants, or with vassal states or allies like the king of Tyre. So he controlled the major trade routes, all the trade routes by land from Arabia, from Asia Minor, and the Hittites, from Babylon. All of that had to come through Israel. So you have Solomon with all this wealth, all this splendor, all this wisdom, and he's allied through marriage to the king of Egypt. And so you see that this is very consistent in the ancient world with marriages being made between nations as a way to cement alliances. Most of Solomon's wives were probably uh, daughters of kings, minor kings, chiefs and sheikhs of various Arabian nations to secure trade and to secure alliances and peace between the two nations. Most of these marriages are based on politics and securing trade uh, trade routes and securing alliances. That's not to justify them. In fact, Solomon goes against the command of God. So there's no mention, Brett, in Egyptian records of Thomas I invading the hill country of Israel. And this is significant because pharaohs routinely went on campaign during this period and most periods in Egyptian history to the north and the south to secure their dominance because the Egyptians never left garrisons of any great size in foreign lands because no Egyptian wanted to die on foreign soil. It was part of their religion that they wanted to die and be buried in their own land so that they could secure their passage into the next world. So we don't see that in the case of Thomas. Even though he was a warlike pharaoh and a former general, he didn't invade the north. Well, there's a reason for that. His son-in-law was the king of the north. He was allied with the king of Israel. And when you see that down in the plain of Sharon, the city of Gezer, and that city was right in the path on the road from Egypt up to Jerusalem. And we know from history that a city was given, that city was given as a dowry by the king of Egypt to Solomon. And in that period, when they dig down and look at the tells, the various levels of civilization that have lived in that city, you see clear and distinct burn marks from that period in the Bronze Age, that that city was burned to the ground and as rebuilt as the Bible described it, that the Pharaoh took that city and gave it to Solomon as a dowry. Again, more evidence, indications in the archaeological record showing the Bible's to be true. Um, so back home now, Thomas continues his building program. He's not just a pharaoh of conquest and war. He's also a builder. He builds the temple at Karnak. He starts the process, and he erects two giant obelisks there as well. And one of them is still standing there to this day. And you think of an obelisk, think of the Washington Monument. And this, this obelisk stood 64 feet high and weighs 143 tons. And it's still there 3,000 years later. That's incredible. It, it, it certainly is. And when you consider that the, it didn't have a grounding, it was that the foundation was basically almost entirely weight. It didn't have any ropes or anything leaning into it. It was just like the Washington Monument today. Gravity held it there, and yet it is held there for all these millennia. It's truly incredible. There's an old proverb, uh, Egyptian proverb, that says, man fears time, but time fears the pyramids. I like that. I've never heard of that. Yes, there's a lot of, great, a lot of good Egyptian proverbs. So Thomas I 
is waging wars, making alliances with Solomon, building great temples, but he has no son to carry on after him. But he does have a son by his secondary wife, his great wife. Uh, that's what they called the queens. They didn't have a word for queen. They just they called them the great wife. Uh, the great his great wife has no son, but he does have a son by his secondary wife, who produced his uh, heir, Thomas II. And Thomas II was probably in his late teens when his father died. So you think of Abraham. Sarah not having any children, so the secondary wife, the concubine, Hagar, has a child by Abraham in, when Abraham was getting older. So you could see the same thing happening in, in Egypt. The Pharaoh's wife can't have a son, so the secondary wife is her son is born. This Pharaoh, Thomas II, marries, because I, I described about the process of continuity through the daughters of the Pharaohs. He actually marries his half-sister, Hatshepsut, who was the daughter by the great wife, also Thomas I, to secure his claim to the throne. That's just nasty. He married his half-sister. Well, we well yes, and it, it's it's a uh, is a different culture, and uh, and and you know as you say that, I thought to myself, well. We don't want to be too mean because Abraham also married his half-sister by his father, <laughs> another another woman. But the difference is, of course, is that the gene pool had not been weakened by sin uh, that far back. That was about 900 years earlier when that had happened. Plus, most, more importantly, the Lord had not seen fit to lay down in law the commandments against that practice yet in the law he gave to Moses. So at uh, this point, yes, it is a sin, and if they had been living in Israel, uh, there would have been serious penalties for something like that. Yeah. But, but again, this is a royal arrangement, and many times the, uh, the situation, uh, the, the marriage is not so much to produce heirs as it is to secure continuity in the line of succession, and a secondary wife will have the actual son who will succeed, as in the case of Thomas II. So you go forward now and you see that the marriage of Thomas II to Hatshepsut produced no children, uh, no sons either, but through a secondary wife named Isis. That name, by the way, has been ruined. It used to be a beautiful name. Now it's forever ruined, at least our generation. Uh, no one can think of Isis anymore without thinking of the uh, Islamic State in the Middle East. So the marriage to Thomas II and Hatshepsut produced no sons. So now you have two generations with no sons through the main, uh, main uh, pharaoh and great wife. But Thomas, like his father, has a secondary wife named Isis who produced a son named Thomas who will become known as Thomas the Great. And he will be crowned Thomas III and he will be, become the greatest of all the pharaohs. But he was only 12 years old when his father died. So you see, much like the, the kings of Israel and of Judah, like Joash and like Josiah, these pharaohs are young, very young when they're coming into office. And so Hatshepsut assumed the role of regent. Her, her, half, her stepson is 12 years old. He can't rule. So she becomes pharaoh. All right, so let's talk about Hatshepsut, the female pharaoh. Well, absolutely. She's a fascinating character, and her reign is parallel to the time of Solomon's early and middle reign, and this is around the time when the mysterious Queen of the South, the Queen of Sheba, appears. And when you look at her period in time and the connections there, there are some very interesting parallels because the Queen of the South, have Josephus talking about her, and these records indicate that she was probably the queen of Egypt. We don't know for sure, and there is debate among biblical Bible-believing historians and archaeologists about this issue, but it seems likely, which is interesting in terms of the legends that have been spawned by the queen of Sheba, like for example, the belief that the queen of Sheba was the ancestor 
to the kings of Ethiopia. Ethiopian kings traced their lineage back to Solomon. The belief was that the queen of Sheba and Solomon had married and had a son, and that that son would become the first king of Sheba. Before that, they had all had queens. He became the first king of Sheba, and Sheba was believed, according to legend, to have had as its domain both the area which is now Yemen and the area which is now Eritrea and northern Ethiopia. So the kings of Ethiopia traced their lineage back to that time. Now, if this were to be the pharaoh Hatshepsut and Solomon in this period, that would have been almost impossible to comprehend that, that the king of Israel would have a romantic relationship and a child with his own sister-in-law, particularly when this is a period when Solomon appears to be walking with the Lord in fellowship, uh, to do such a thing would, would almost be unthinkable uh, for many reasons. So that's that legend would, and it is a legend, it's not based in archaeological fact, but that legend about Ethiopia would, would not be uh, possible under that, under this revised chronology. So what we have here is the history of Egypt, and particularly the history of Egypt as it relates to Israel and its interactions with Israelite kings and the people of God from the period of 1491 B.C. all the way to the time of Solomon in the 900s B.C. So we've covered a half a millennia of history. And this is just a thumbnail sketch. And I encourage people to study this uh, in their own time to Read the book, uh, Chronology of the Old Testament by Dr. Floyd Jones, an excellent, uh, excellent study of the history of the Old Testament, the chronology of it, putting it into perspective. Uh, Unwrapping the Pharaohs is an excellent source by Dr. David Down. That's available at AnswersInGenesis.com in serial form. You can search there. Also, there are some other great resources available from uh, Answers in Genesis including uh, Unveiling the Kings of Israel, also by David Down, talking about the archaeological records and evidence for Solomon and David, because even they have been called into question by historians of a secular bent in times past. And one thing you'll see, Brad, throughout history is non-believing historians who want to ignore the Bible, sneering at the biblical record and then being proven to be totally wrong and have egg on their faces, so much so that they even went so far as to deny the existence of whole civilizations because the only record for that civilization was the Bible. But we can talk about that at another time. Well, Brant, thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. I found it greatly rewarding, and I really enjoyed our discussion. Your knowledge of history is great, and I love when Biblical history intersects with archaeology and historical documents. Thank you very much, Brett. It's been a privilege. Yeah, thanks again, Brant. It was a pleasure. Maybe we can do it again sometime. Oh, yeah, one more thing. Brant, where can everyone find your YouTube channel? Yes, thank you very much. You can, you can go, go to YouTube and uh, search American Minute excellent program with Bill Federer talking about history and, the, and Christian history in the United States in, in 90 second, short 90 second vignettes. It's an excellent resource, particularly if you have younger children, middle school age, who need the history, some of the Christian history of the United States and the history of great people in short little nuggets, which will be very helpful and I encourage you to uh, go to American Minute on YouTube. That's American Minute on YouTube. <laughs> so it's American Minute by Bill Federer. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, Brant. And uh, maybe we'll do it again sometime. Thank you, sir. Okay, well, well, this is where it gets pretty cool.
Thomas the first had two daughters, Princess Nefer. <laughs> I'm not even going to try to do that. So back home domestically, Thomas continues his building program, and he started to build the pyramid. And So now we arrive at Solomon. Let's talk about Solomon's wife and, oh wait, I can't say that name. <laughs> no, let's just say Solomon's wife. Okay. 